So we begin the fifth and final of the five books of Moshe. This is the beginning of the, the book of Devarim. And Devarim, or Deuteronomy as it's known, is um, decidedly a different book than all of the other books that came before. The books of Moshe, the five books of Moshe, we're told that the... Um, I just want to just make our friends who are sitting in the front here, and that's great, but there, there are people who are watching, so let's try to move around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. Um, it's a very different book. In many ways, it has a different name. It's called Mishneh Torah, the second given of Torah. Deuteronomy, Duto, meaning two, right? Nomos, the second law. Because Moshe seems to go over so much material that came before. But with significant changes, we'll talk about that in a moment. But what's remarkable about the beginning of the book, which we're not going to read, what's remarkable at the beginning of the book, of course, and we say this every year, is that Moses is the one who said about himself that very word that becomes the word that, that is the name of the entire book, divari words. These are the, it's the second word in first verse, these are the divarim, which becomes the name of the book. That word for words, the word divarim for words, divarim, is the very thing that Moses says about himself, I don't have. divarim Moses said to God, I'm not a man of words, and then of course, the man who is the man of words becomes the one who is the man of words. Right, the Moses who says about himself, oh, who me? No, I don't have that. That's what I don't have. Becomes the one who, in the final of the five books named for the man without words, is the title of the book is Words. Right? He seems to have found his voice. <clears throat> a voice that was uh, very much unassured when we first meet Moses. He's not a man of words in the beginning. He's a man of action in the beginning of his career. When Moses is introduced to us in the second chapter of the book of Exodus, Moses is introduced as the one who is who grows up in a house of royalty. He's spared somehow the suffering that his brothers and sisters have to endure. Somehow the opposite of a typical mythic structure where there's a slave, where, where there's a, a king who becomes a pauper and is a kind of king or prince in disguise. This is a slave in disguise. Moses is saved the suffering of his brothers and sisters, and he takes an action, and from this action, so many things occur, and he's just so courageous from the beginning, and then he's afraid, and then he's courageous, and he's afraid, and his words come to him, and then there are words that are given to him by God, and then Aaron is the one who speaks for him, and then we find him using words that are uplifting, and then there are words that he uses that are inappropriate, and he speaks to the people and calls them rebels and says mean things to them and then he gets angry at them and then he says lofty things again. His whole speech pattern is just really remarkable just to watch. But of course the most important moment of speech for Moses is when he doesn't speak. He's told to speak to the rock and instead of speaking to the rock, he kicks the rock. Right? God says to him, use your words, the words that you're learning to use. That will be your portal into the land. And he doesn't. And so he begins the book that will itself be all of it, an oratory of mourning. Moses will come to the people in the fifth book of the five books of Moses as they are about to enter the land. They aren't the ones 
who were barred from the land, but indeed these are the ones that will enter the land. And he says to them, let me remind you that history repeats itself. And if you're not careful, you might not make it to the land the way that I didn't make it at the time. Right? He says, be careful. And so essentially Moses will begin to talk to the people. And then, as I said earlier, he will retell stories. And what's remarkable about Moses' retelling of stories is, of course, if you read them, he retells some stories very, um, with great accuracy and, and a great uh, loyalty to the text. But there are many stories that he tells in a very different valence, with, right, with considerable license when he tells the stories. And that alone is, is great total. And we can stop there for a moment and say that if the Jewish people gave the world something, and who knows if we gave it, but we think that we gave it. And others have given it to me, but something, something very profound about our tradition is the tradition of interpretation. Right? The interpretation of the Torah is considered to be equal, if not greater, maybe greater, than the Torah itself. There are very few traditions where the rabbis or the sages of that tradition playfully change God's word. Or I should say prayfully. They prayfully change God's word. And in that way, when we talk about sacred literature or foundational documents and how they evolve, we have, to some degree, within our tradition, the precursor of what we in our country suffer with and struggle with all the time, which is how do we both venerate a founding document and still read it as relevant? Or what does the Torah mean to me? We just saw the broader play, what the Constitution means to me. What does the Constitution, what does the Torah mean to me? How do we make meaning of a text? And Moses, the great prophet, is the first one in his telling the stories. He retells them in a way that changes them significantly and importantly. The first story that he tells, of course, is the story of the spies. <clears throat> he tells the people, you know, as I spoke about last night, remember, not you, but remember, he says you, but it wasn't that, it was their parents. Remember that how you came and you wanted spies. Which wasn't the story, right? The story was that God said, send, send them. Right? And Moses changes that. He says, oh, remember that you wanted spies. And then Moses adds a number of other pieces, but one of the most important ones, which I mentioned last night, was that he said to them, the truth is, lo ma'alot, you didn't want to go up to the land. In other words, let's cut through all of the, you know, the stuff. Let's cut through the, the doubt, and you shouldn't have listened to them when the 12 spies came back and 10 of them said it wasn't a great place. Let's look at the deeper motivation. It's not, you found excuses. Those are kind of confirmation bias. You already didn't want to go up, Moses says. He added that. It doesn't say anywhere in the text that they didn't want to go up to the land. It looks like they were pretty excited. In that moment, just for a moment here, he was naming that a man sees what he wants to see and disregards the rest. <laughs> right? You wanted not to go in. You're just looking for excuses. And when the spies came back and told you, indeed, it's going to be terrifying, you were like, you see? We don't have to go up. And for us, in this moment, we can ask ourselves, on so many levels, like, like you know, 
I'll let you do the individual personal level, but I spoke about that last night. What I did say last night, which was implied, I think I did say it, I think it was implied, at least, is that there's a nation that, that benefits us white people really want to undo that system of oppression. I mean, it's really good to be privileged, isn't it? It's, it you know, we're living large, right? Politicians live large. Only people in power live large. It takes a lot of courage and reflection and honesty and even terror management, right? To be able to be really able to see the kind of changes that will disrupt all of us systemically, nationally. Like really, if Moses were living today, he'd kind of say this and say, you don't really want to get rid of your guns, do you? You like your guns. And the second amendment is kind of interesting way to hang your hat on that. But really? Let's have a real conversation. And we might say that about ourselves also in other ways that we are afraid to change as well. Like really, as my teacher, I had a teacher in Israel used to say, that in every behavior there's a revach, there's a benefit, there's something that you um, uh, you get paid. But what's, what's the word? Gain, there's a gain. Right? Every behavior has a gain. And until you acknowledge that gain, right, trying to convince yourself to change that behavior will be futile. So Rosh Hashanah begins with that shift. And he says he didn't really want to go up, and there are other things that he says. In the second story that he tells in the party, he talks about his father-in-law, Yitro, about how I was overwhelmed, right, and I didn't know how to delegate appropriately, and my father-in-law came along and gave me that wisdom. But of course, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, he doesn't mention his father-in-law. And on one level, Rabbi Hammer, I think about five years ago, gave a beautiful talk about this about how he doesn't mention his father-in-law's good advice. But on a positive level, how we might interpret that is that Moses acknowledged to himself finally what his father-in-law saw on the outside. And how many burned out people, right, can finally admit that they themselves were overwhelmed without somebody from the outside saying, you are really overwhelmed. Like first it was, you know, the story was his father-in-law told him he was overwhelmed. By the time Deuteronomy shows up, he retells the story, he says, you know, I'm just going to own the fact that I was completely overwhelmed. Right? I was so young. It's a very beautiful rendering, you know, even as it lies over his father's contribution, which is still, of course, the Torah. And I mention all of this because we're about to read chapter 2, verse 31. <clears throat> Look in your Chumashim, in your Red Bible, at page 994 on the bottom of the page. 994. Last verse on the page, on the bottom, it begins in English, and the Lord said to me, the Hebrew by Yomar Adonai Eli, Re'e, look, see, Hachiloti teit lefanecha, I have begun Placing before you at Sichon et Artsa. Sichon, who is the king at that point, 
along with Oak, they always go together like Abbott and Costello, it's Sichon and Oak, Melech HaVashan. Hachel Resh, Hachel Rash, Varesh so begin the occupation, begin taking possession of the land. Right? Moses now at the beginning, he's telling over the story, you can imagine all of Israel sitting on his knee. Like, listen children, I'm up to the next story. There were these big kings, one was Sichon, one was Og, right? And we conquered them. <clears throat> and it begins with this verse, and of course the verse will go on to say some very painful things about that occupation, that conquering. And so, this is a moment, as, as you all know, called Migrashit um, Moments, right? Can you all say that with me? Migrashit Moments, right? This Migrashit Moment is essentially the art of reinterpreting. So imagine now that not only are we listening to Moses reinterpreting the Torah, but we are reinterpreting Moses' reinterpreting the Torah. In other words, we're a super commentary on a commentary on the Torah, right? We're a super commentary. Right? This is a very deeply troubling story about an occupation, a conquering of a king as the Israelites made their way, and Moses is retelling it to them, and this is how we made our way to where we are today. We conquered all these groups, and here we are standing before the we're at the Transjordan, we're about to enter the land, and here there was this king, Sihon, and God said to me, I have begun to teach you. I have begun to, right, to give him into your hands. So we're going to do a little midrash on the midrash. We're doing a little commentary, expansion, how we might make this relevant for us in the moment. So, remarkably, Rashi, the great medieval commentator, says something so remarkable and strange. Rashi says that when Moses tells the people, I have begun to give before you, meaning Moses quotes God telling Moses, Behold, I have begun to give these people to you. What does that mean, I have begun to give them to you? Right, so on one level it's just, you know, hey, the conquest has begun. But that's a, for the rabbis, God is signaling something else. There's another beginning, I and mean, this is the beginning on the terrestrial plane. Rashi quotes the rabbis in saying, <coughs> Somehow the war below did not begin below, but it began somewhere else. A different, a different plane is where the beginning of this war happened. It began in the supernal realms with some archangel being cast down by God. And that's the beginning of the fall of Sichon and his enemies. That's it. <laughs> what do you think? What does the term mean to me? What does the term mean to me? We have a really difficult piece of text about conquest and war in the Torah. And like a difficult piece of text in the Constitution or in a letter or anywhere else, we are required now to interpret it and bend it. And what does it mean when the beginning of a conquest happens not on the level that is visible, but on a level that is invisible. That the beginnings, the incipient stages of corrosion, erosion, collapse, 
are not visible to the eye, but begin somewhere else in some other causal event. What does that mean? For you. So I'm going to, I'll offer where I went, and then I'll offer, maybe you didn't go there, maybe you went somewhere else. But where I went was that in some way, the Torah, and now through Rashi's expansion, right, my first guess was like, really? Archangels? This is just a, I hate this text. That is the text of terror to use Phyllis Triples. Like, you know, this is like, really? I don't want to think about how the conquest and we took laid siege to the land. We're still laying siege to lands. We came to this country and we laid siege to other people's lands. Right? We still have. Right? In our own land of Israel, there's an occupation happening. All of this, I'm kind of like, okay, this is, I don't want to read this about me and about nothing positive here. There's no juice to squeeze from this. It's just pulp. And then I heard Rashi say no. There's a little word here, and I'm reading it carefully, Rashi says, God, God says to Moses, and Moses is rendering, I have begun. What does beginning mean? Beginning doesn't mean like on the clock. Beginning means in some metaphysical realm where there are angels. And I've begun to weaken the king below through the weakening of the angel above. And I'm thinking, oh, I believe in all that stuff. I don't know if I believe in that stuff. And then I think to myself, isn't that always the isn't always the case that the seeds of destruction are invisible. They begin, right, in some way before it's obvious, before it makes its way into our consciousness. And that if we look carefully, we can see it was there all along, but we didn't look and we didn't see. It was sort of visible, it was hazy, but like democracy dies in the dark. That's what the you know, Washington Post has been saying. It's kind of that phrase, democracy dies in the dark. But the beginning stages of the collapse of the civilization are not writ large. They're not like, you know, here we go. It would slide kind of very slowly in, right? Little things are taken away, little angels are thrown to the ground that were protective angels, and all of a sudden that protection has begun eroding. It's a Supreme Court justice here. It's a lower court justice there. It's like a this, it's a that. And before we know it, here we are. The name of Av, the collapse of the temple, El Paso, Dayton, Ohio, right? and the began kind of innocuously, who knows? Something is here in this metaphysical fantasy. Some archangel's protective force, right, has been vanquished and now something else is unleashed. So we have the blessing of interpretation, the danger of not reinterpreting, and then we have this opportunity. What say you? Yes. Ellen, loud and strong. Loud and strong. Those people in those lands didn't know me and didn't believe in me. They had a lot of gods, false gods, but my truth is starting to make inroads a little bit at a time. It's the beginning of belief in me in monotheism. So you're reading out, so you're saying, 
is a story about monotheism, right? And it's a story about belief in the true God or one God or whatever it might be. And here we have making inroads. There's still kind of okay. Anybody else? Linda. There has to be a moment of destruction or for a victory. I just want to, for a moment, just take that on a tangent. I know there was another hand up, and I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then David. Yeah, who's there? To me, to me, when you say that something, to me, when you say that something started in the world above, it's a, it's a shorthand. What you're really saying is everything in this world is reflected in the world above. So that if you say that something began in the world above, to me, what it means is what can, what are the things that we can do to make change? So, if it started with an archangel, and, and that was yeah. the fault. So, how is it what we're doing that affected what the archangel being thrown out of the world above? How does that happen? How do that? By our own actions. Because we are the, it's a mirror. So this is where Theo and I wanted to say two things and then David. So somehow somebody last night thought that I was saying that we shouldn't look into the past, we shouldn't only move forward. That looking down, like I gave a sermon last night about fear of heights. And I wasn't saying that 
we can overcome our fear of heights by refusing, right? It was a different, <laughs> it was a different metaphor. I, you know, I was saying that often we forget that we need heights as well as depths in order to, to live a full life and also a country that has visions as well as protections. Right? Positive commandments as well as negative things that we should do as well as the things that we ought not to do. And I was thinking that that message did come across as, as purely as I wanted. And here you're, you're bringing me to another place, which is this text is essentially talking about branches and roots. Right? The notion that in order to to conquer Sichon, we have to go to the root of his source, the root of his power, in order to to, to, to uh, deactivate that, to, to weaken that, has roots also in our own psycho-spiritual development, like the roots of things. And on a national level, on a social level, like it's not enough just to work with the branches. Right? When you're having a war with Sichon, but you haven't yet identified what is giving Sichon Sichon's power. Right? The roots of it are important. Right? It's important to actually to attack a problem, to address a problem, to use a less uh, you know, violent image, to address a problem at its roots. Right? To the extent that we don't, right, we, we are not we're not actually situated to win. And that'd be a really deep allegorical way of removing yourself from the whole story. It's still there everywhere for all to see in its full ugliness. And let's hold it there too, because Right? It's an ugly story, but it's also a story, at least the way that we have read it, is a story of like this teaching, which is you know, the roots of things have given the branches their power, right? and we must address those issues, right? the deep structures of, of systemic oppression, systemic issues. Right? That's where the thing has to be. It's both ends, right? but it's about time to deal with the roots. Right? And the second thing that I wanted to say, and then I'll come back to David, is along the lines of what Robin was lifting up. Imagine that you're telling a story to a group of really terrified people who are about to enter the land. It kind of serves a really beautiful function, doesn't it? Like to give them the strength to go forward. It's like, you know, on some level, you know, they weren't there at that war. And they're saying, like, listen, we, we've dealt with bigger problems than this one. Right? We, uh, we, there was even Sichon. He was really big. They're all going, ooh, it was big. It's like, but we, we were able to overcome that problem. And that way also, Moses has good, like, it's a good moment in that sense to tell them these war stories. Right? For people that are terrified, we've dealt with bigger moral issues than this one, and we've overcome them, or we've dealt with bigger issues. We can do it. Like, it's a kind of we can do it moment, which is a separate piece. David. Okay, well, building on this, the roots are always there. So, but people ignore them. We live our lives, we have our beliefs, and people want to change. Whatever's going on, we rationalize it, we tolerate it, and nothing changes. And until you reach the tipping point, more and more and more has to happen. Even to the point where you just can't ignore it anymore. So, uh, in this way, you know, God has to build up the pressure. Okay. They finally see my right. God. So, right. Until we have, until we deal with the roots, it doesn't go away. Right. Okay. Um, this is a hand up on the side. Yeah, you're in the back. You're in. So, I'm really struck by the word Lamrashet. It has like reshoot
So Mary just did an amazing thing. She just like embodied a great Hasidic master from somewhere in the 18th century, right? And you didn't see it happen, but it happened. I can still see presence of a Hasidic master that you can do it. So basically, Mary just basically said, listen, I'm hearing a theme here, but it's kind of appearing to me through the resonance of words and letters that are kind of speaking to me. And since, Mary said, since we're already talking about angels and, the, and this kind of warfare power conversation, we're also talking about possession of land. And the word in Hebrew to possess land, la reshet, which means to inherit it, or to take possession of it, really is a chuzah. La reshet means more to receive land. She said, I hear that in that the word reshut, which is permission. And there is, in our liturgy, a phrase that we didn't, we, we didn't say this morning, maybe some of us did, that the angels give each other permission, reshut, zelazet. They are permission, like one of the signal features of, of the angelic conversations are they invite each other. Right? We're sure they give each other permission. So Mary just blended all these beautiful themes together and said, I think what's really happening here is that in conversations about power and conquest and conquering, there is a, a subtle hint here um, of, of a different power, a power that comes not from possession but from permission. Right? And that permission from the word reshut is, is an operative feature of, of this kind of compass. That in a, conversation about words and how they're used and, and a Moses who sometimes uses words sternly and sometimes uses them um, in, a, in a much softer tone, there's here another kind of word which is the word please or the word permission the power of asking for permission beautiful Torah that's like up there with, with the prediction that's a beautiful term. okay I'm going to take one more and then we're going to a call for the community to come up and take a call to this first Aliyah. And that's our verdict for this morning. Yes. Okay, shifting things uh, to a more quantum perspective. Okay, to a certain extent, everything already happened. The victory, the defeat, the destruction, the uplifting, the hardening, the softening, it's all occurring in real time. And uh, you know, in other dimensions, eternal dimensions you refer to, no such thing has come. All these scenarios are posted on the wall. And to a large extent, going filtering to the lower levels, man sees, man hears what he wants to hear, he sees what he wants to see, he experiences what he expects to experience. So on the lower levels, setting up through the barim, the words, the intentions, the actions, a certain scenario don't go, okay, you are moving that group in time and space towards a destructive or non-fulfillment level of not achieving the divine promise. Okay, you are setting yourself up to that reality which already exists. So basically it's the varying intentions, vision, group dynamic, and quantum entanglement with other dimensions. So just so everybody can hear this, and I'm going to bring it in for landing here, and then we're going to rise up for this other So we're been now amazingly, beautifully brought into the world of Niles Bohr and other great quantum 
and metaphysicians or let's say scientists who are dealing with, with the quantum field who spoke about a, 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 a universe that we're multiple, multiple, multi or multiple dimensionality with reality and that in at least one dimension of reality all of time all things that are past, present, and future are all equally present as it were, all scenarios and as it were, and that this story is talking about um, the power that we have to co-create as, you know, or manifest what is happening in the world through our, right, through our voices, through our choices, through our words, right, and that all of these stories, right, are all fully present in all their different scenarios, which is not unlike what Nachmanbi said, that it's all one name of God from the beginning of the church to the end, and it just depends on how you splice it. That's what the reality you live, right? So that kind of notion. So I want to bring this in for a landing here for this first Aliyah. So today is Tisha B'Av, the night of Av. Tonight we'll be celebrating, commemorating, I should say, enacting uh, the the pain of mourning and the pain of loss, the pain of destruction, and the unredeemed world as it appears to us. Um, and so much of how we bring about redemption is connected with how we read stories. And how we read stories is up to us. Right? We have interpretive lenses, and it's really important for us to use them appropriately for the sake of the good. And in this particular moment of lifting up this destructive text, there's a reminder for us of the Torah of, um, of the roots of things. And that it's important to go to the root of things and to not be settling with the branches. And I want to lift up all of the Torah that was lifted up here in this, in this space this morning around permission and around the possibility of a different model of power sharing. And I also want to lift up the importance of, uh, of dismantling root systems and root causes, right, not being stuck in, uh, in only seeing what's before us, but also being attentive to the roots of things. And the last thing I want to offer is what I began with, which is we have to be very vigilant in recognizing the core principles without which, right, although not immediately evident, but over time, time itself without those core principles will take us down the road we don't want to go down. And we have to safeguard those roots, the roots where the problems begin, but also where those things must be identified, acknowledged, and then safeguarded. If that speaks to you this morning, like Torah this morning is calling you, it might not be. But if it is, I invite you at this moment to indeed la'alot to come up for the first Aliyah.